This podcast is brought to you by Reynolds & Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Learn how operating differently can help you overcome the pressures facing your dealership today at reyrey.com slash operate differently. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash operate dash differently. Want to dive deeper into the topics you hear about on Daily Drive? We're offering listeners a special offer, 20% off a one-year automotive news digital subscription. That gets you access to all of our news, information, and analysis made for automotive industry leaders like you. Go to autonews.com slash daily drive promo to redeem. Welcome to Daily Drive for Wednesday, September 20th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News here in Detroit. And I'm Kellen Walker in Las Vegas. Today on the show, Ford avoids a second strike. It reached a tentative labor agreement with Unifor in Canada. The UAW strikes a ZF plant in Alabama, and the Detroit Three push back on UAW messaging. Plus, former U.S. auto czar Stephen Ratner joins the show to talk about the UAW's demands and why he thinks the union is overplaying its hand. I don't know Sean Fain, but I think we've all seen the theatrics around union negotiations before, and I don't have any problem with that. I think he's taken this to an excess. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Unifor has reached a last-minute tentative agreement with Ford of Canada. It averts what would have been Ford's second union walkout in North America since Friday. Negotiators with the union representing Canadian auto workers and counterparts from Ford hammered out the deal late Tuesday, six weeks after the bargaining process began and about 22 hours after the original strike deadline passed. Unifor National President Lana Payne said the tentative agreement addresses all of the items raised by members in preparation for this round of collective bargaining. A statement from the automaker said Ford of Canada will not discuss the specifics of the tentative agreement to respect the ratification process. No details were immediately available, but Unifor said it will present them to members at ratification meetings in the coming days. This morning, the UAW struck a ZF Group plant in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. It builds front and rear axles for Mercedes-Benz vehicles built nearby. About 190 workers at ZF's chassis systems plant walked out at 5 a.m. local time. Core issues for workers there include wages and a tiered wage structure as well as health care coverage. Spokespeople for Mercedes did not immediately return a request for comment. Representatives of local 2083 could not be reached for comment. A ZF spokesperson said the plant would continue to run. Meanwhile, the Detroit Three have begun pushing back on the UAW's messaging. This as the sides work to see if they can reach an agreement before Friday. That's when the union said it will expand its ongoing strike if negotiations this week stall. UAW President Sean Fain has made record profits and CEO pay core to his argument that union workers deserve hefty raises. Ford said its 2022 earnings are not a record. They were higher in 2013, 2015, and 2016. The automaker also said that CEO Jim Farley's compensation rose less than what Fain has said. In an opinion piece published this morning in the Detroit Free Press, GM President Mark Royce pushed back against what he called the flow of misinformation and rhetoric that could delay reaching a tentative deal with the union. 
And Mark Stewart, North America COO of Stellantis, went on local and national television and radio shows to defend the company's position, including this appearance yesterday on CNBC. We put together a very compelling offer last week, which was not accepted, including a 20% wage, 21% cumulative over the period, provisions for cost of living adjustments, some great, great provisioning and, uh, and enhancements to our 401k plan, and maintaining our awesome benefits of just Diamond Star, top 2% of the nation, 100% coverage. About 13,000 workers at three plants, one each from General Motors, Ford Motor Company, and Stellantis, are on strike. Besides higher wages, the UAW is demanding shorter work weeks, restoration of defined benefit pensions, and stronger job security as automakers make the EV shift. In other Detroit 3 related news, Stellantis is reassessing its footprint in Michigan, including its North American base in Auburn Hills. A company spokesperson said the Chrysler Technology Center will continue to be its North American headquarters and North America Technical Center. A CNBC report said the 5.4 million square foot Chrysler Technology Center is among 18 facilities the automaker included in a proposal last week to the UAW. It said the company is required to notify the UAW of any possible sales or closures of facilities where a union member works. Mark Stewart of Stellantis said the company has a series of facilities that it's looking to downsize or reconfigure. He said the company is not leaving the headquarters complex, but is looking at repurposing areas it's not using. Like many office buildings, the complex has sat underutilized since COVID-19 ushered in work from home for many companies. And some non-UAW Detroit 3 news. The Insurance Institute for Highway Safety says minivans need enhanced second row safety. Each of the four minivans in the U.S. market received less than acceptable ratings in the IIHS new moderate front overlap crash test. It places a higher emphasis on backseat safety. The Chrysler Pacifica, Kia Carnival, and Toyota Sienna received marginal ratings, while the Honda Odyssey was rated poor. An IIHS spokesperson said the unfavorable ratings stem from adopting improved airbags and advanced seatbelts in front seats while overlooking the second row, creating a safety gap. IIHS found that newer, advanced airbags and restraints are rarely available in the back. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, now you said yesterday that Ford would be more eager to get a deal done with Unifor, and it looks like they're getting it done. What are your thoughts on Unifor's negotiations going a lot smoother than their UAW counterparts? Yeah, it's interesting. We've seen a change of leadership at both unions, kind of forced by a scandal. But the one at Unifor was was much smaller. And Lana Payne, the new president, was already part of the central administration, had a lot of experience and familiarity. Uh, Sean Fain has had some experience, uh, but did not have, you know, the broad base of support. He didn't have really a mandate coming out of his election, and nor does he have a big machine, you know, entrenched leaders throughout the country. So he's had to do a lot more, whether you consider them gimmicks or stunts or, you know, histrionics, but just outreach, you know, through his Facebook lives and marching and giving interviews to the media. He's had to do a lot more of that to rally support behind him and the deal that he eventually reaches with the Detroit Three. I'm sure it's um, quite inconvenient for the Detroit Three. It's just the reality of the two different unions. That's interesting. And coming up, 
We'll hear from former Obama administration auto czar Stephen Ratner. He gives his perspective on the UAW strike and the union's heavy demands. That's next on Daily Drive. The auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality is here and it's accelerating. But is it enough? This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moment of peril, but also a moment of extraordinary possibilities. No more hesitancy. No more excuses. No more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. Driving to Zero is a new podcast series from Automotive News that looks at the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. We take a big picture look at the environmental, political, and social trends pushing the move toward a greener future. And we pull back the curtain on how these decisions are being made at the highest levels. I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is is GM believes in an all-electric future. And I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like, but, but we, we don't. Spoiler alert, they came around to that idea. Find out how and much more. I'm Jake Neer. Join me and Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters on Driving to Zero, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Economic uncertainty, vehicle affordability, and ever-increasing customer expectations are threatening the profitability and efficiency gains you've made over the last couple of years. You may be finding the strategies you've used to improve performance in the past just aren't as effective as they once were. You offer online options so customers can begin the buying process remotely, but your salespeople have to rebuild the deal or correct it during the in-store appointment. You ask your advisors to be proactive about calling customers to get work approved, but still wind up with occupied bays and stalled jobs when the customer doesn't answer the phone. Your business office clerks are trying to process deal jackets faster, but funding still takes weeks. The strategies you've used to improve performance in the past just aren't as effective as they once were. Getting better at outdated and inefficient processes will only get you so far. Let's face it, Netflix isn't a household name because they got really good at mailing DVDs. And nearly half of Apple's revenue comes from the iPhone, not from the computers the company was founded on. These companies evolved as new challenges presented themselves instead of sticking with the status quo. It's time for a mindset shift. It's time to operate differently. Finding new and innovative ways to operate is essential to effectively managing the pressures facing your dealership. Visit reyrey.com slash operate differently to get started. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash operate dash differently. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. The UAW is on strike against the Detroit Three in large part to win back benefits it lost during the Great Recession and subsequent bankruptcies of General Motors and Chrysler. Stephen Ratner played a key role in those bailouts as counselor to the Secretary of Treasury and head of the Obama administration's auto task force. He says the union's demands are excessive and would threaten the automaker's survival in a competitive industry. Ratner spoke with Michael Martinez, who covers the UAW and Ford, for us here at Automotive News. Okay, Stephen Ratner, thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here. I guess just want to start off broadly by getting your opinion. I know you've been following these negotiations and the strike that's been going on now into day five. What do you think of the UAW's demands? Unfortunately, I think they're a bit excessive. I do believe that the auto workers need to get paid more. They've taken a fair amount of pain over the last 15 years. Uh, they have certainly got some profit share, gotten some profit sharing and other uh, compensation for what they did and for the success of the industry over the last 15 years. 
But this is a tough situation, and, and it's a very tough industry, uh, relatively thin profit margins, uh, competition from non-unionized plants in the South, as well as in Mexico and other foreign imports. And you have to, the union has to be careful that they don't uh, kill the goose that lays the golden egg, so to speak, by asking for too much. I'm wondering, I think you can provide some really necessary historical perspective here. You were the leader of the Obama administration's task force that really bailed out and helped GM and, and Chrysler back during the Great Recession. And when you got a chance to look at their books, essentially, and saw things like the current UAW contracts they had back then that had crazy pension obligations, that had a jobs bank that paid workers to sit around. What was your reaction to that? And do you think there's any case to be made for revisiting that in 2023? I think, as you say, to put this in historical context, for many, many, for decades, the so-called big three, now we call them the Detroit three because they're not quite as big anymore relative to other companies, dominated the industry. They had, I think, a 90% market share of cars sold in the United States if you go back to the 50s and 60s. And so they could afford to pay more. Uh, they could afford to have these gold-plated benefits. They could afford to have uh, uh, the jobs bank and all the stuff that they had because there wasn't as much competition. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending upon your perspective, we live in a different world today. From a consumer's point of view, it's been very good news. They have more choices of more cars at lower prices relative to other things than they did back then. But from the worker's point of view, it means they are effectively as workers competing against all these other workers in other places that get paid much, much less. And so it's just a question. Do you want to have the jobs or do you want to have the compensation? Unfortunately, I don't think in the modern world you can have both. And so, yes, we did make a lot of changes. Uh, the jobs bank, I think, was eliminated right before we got there, but we certainly would have if it hadn't been. Uh, and the pension plans changed and the health care benefits changed. And they, did, uh, they didn't take any real cut in their actual wages, as you know, they did agree, and we did have the so-called tier two, as now they call them temps, which was a way to cut the labor costs for the companies. But it is what it is. The tiers are such a big issue. They have been a couple contract cycles in a row now, but especially now, the company says it gives them flexibility. The union says they want to eliminate it and go back to the period where it was 90 days to top wage. Yeah, but remember, remember that the tiers exist in part, and this is one of the issues with unions. And I was a union member at the New York Times for eight and a half years, so I have I've seen unions, and I I certainly support the important role they play uh, in, in American labor and in making sure that workers are paid fairly. But in effect, if you go back to around the two thousand nine period, and again the tier the tiers I think existed just before we got there, but we certainly uh, we certainly added to it. The union had a choice, right? They could have said, the company said, look, we can only afford to pay X. And the unions, in effect, had a choice. So do you give that, do you protect your existing workers fully and take the pain by having these newer, younger workers getting paid literally half as much? Or do you basically say everybody has to share the pain, so the older workers are going to take a pay cut and the younger workers won't have to come in at such a low wage? You literally have had and still have workers working side by side on an assembly line doing exactly the same job. 15 years ago, they were paid half as much um, if they were tier twos as tier ones. And that was, in effect, a decision the union kind of made as much as management. I think later they created that eight-year grow-in period. Um, Correct. 
to make yeah. those top wages. It seems like maybe there's some room for compromise there, cutting that down at least a little bit. Well, again, it's a question of there's X amount of dollars available, uh, whatever it is, a billion dollars, pick a number. And it's a question of how the union and the management agree to whack that up. And yes, you can cut down the time it takes to get to a full, a full permanent worker. And I'm certainly in favor of that. But that money has to come from somewhere. And it may mean that instead of getting a, a 20% pay increase, they get 18. Or instead of 25, they get 23, whatever the numbers are. It has to add up to something that the companies can afford to do. We're seeing some pretty heavy rhetoric uh, on both sides. I, I think Ford has said if it gave the union everything it wanted over the past four years, it would have lost $14 billion and probably go bankrupt. Uh, the union is saying the companies could afford to double wages and still be profitable and not have to raise the price of cars. Where do you see the reality of if these demands were in place? Would they be financially unviable again? Well, let's start with the fact that some of these demands are just ridiculous and that nobody seriously thinks they're going to come to pass. Uh, the workers are not going to get paid for 40 hours and work 32 hours. We're not going to go back to defined benefit pension plans and so on and so forth. We can go through the list. So uh, they, the UAW put a list on the table that I think nobody can really possibly take seriously as what where this will ultimately end up. And so I, so sure, yeah, if, they, if the companies agreed to everything, would they go bankrupt? Maybe, I don't know, but they certainly would be in a tough position. But that's not the reality. The reality is, is it 20%, is it 25% over four years? What's the number? What, what do you do about things like the tier twos and a few other things? And the flip side, of course, being the companies want more freedom to manage and more freedom to be able to compete, especially in EVs, against what's coming from all the other companies that are now in this industry, including startups, uh, including Tesla, which, as you know, has no unions at all. So you're a numbers guy. Any particular figures that really jump out to you or you think are worth paying attention to as this drags on? Well, I think the, I think the core of the issue is always going to be the annual pay increases. And I think we're now at roughly 20% bid and 35%-ish or something like that ask. And so there's a number there that can be met. Look, it is a fact and, and where I am very sympathetic to the union, but I don't have a magic solution, is if you look at the average wage of all auto workers in the U.S. over the last 15 years, after inflation, they've had no pay raise, none. And that is just the reality uh, of being in a globally competitive industry. If you look at other industries, service industries, the average workers have had substantial pay increases even after inflation over that same period. So this has been a really tough industry to be in uh, as a worker. I get that. And yes, I get the fact that the companies are uh, making a good amount of money at the moment, although relatively thin margins. It's still a tough business. And so I think you want to settle out in a place where ideally the workers get some kind of a pay increase after inflation, but it's not going to obviously be all they hope for. And then some things on the on the, what they call the temps now and so forth would obviously be uh, be a good thing, but again, a lot of the demands are just not even seriously on the table. Can you take us back to that recession time period? What were your interactions like, if any, with with the UAW at the time, and what's your read on the leadership and the approach they're taking today? My interactions with the UAW, which which were uh, you know reasonable, I had a colleague of mine who handled the day to day, 
but I, I certainly spent a fair amount of time with Ron Gettelfinger, who was the chair, uh, the president of the UAW at the time, were unbelievably constructive. I was, I, and I wrote this in my book, I was really impressed the first time we went to their headquarters in Detroit. And instead of a lot of rhetoric and fist pounding and blah, 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 we got a very thoughtful PowerPoint presentation of all the issues they face, the challenges they face, and what's happened to their union over these years, all of which, again, I'm deeply sympathetic to. And then we got down to business and Ron Gettelfinger knew that there had to be some sacrifice by the UAW to keep these companies from disappearing. Now, you know, as Rahm Emanuel, the chief of staff famously has said, never let a crisis go to waste. And so uh, Ron Gettelfinger understood that absent help from him, we asked all the stakeholders to make sacrifices, and all of them did in the end. Absent help from him, these companies might well have disappeared. So he was under a lot of pressure. I think today, I don't know Sean Fain, but I think we've all seen the theatrics around union negotiations before, and I don't have any problem with that. I think he's taken this to an excess. I think making it as public as he has put himself in a difficult position because whatever the outcome of this is, is going to be measured against this whole list of demands. And that, that puts a lot of pressure on him. So I think if I were in his shoes, I would have handled this a bit differently. But I understand the feelings on the part of the UAW after 15 years of effectively no pay increase, uh, inflation adjusted. We've been talking with workers on the picket line and obviously hearing from union leaders too. And it seems to be that they believe that all the concessions made back then were eventually supposed to be undone or restored or returned to them. And they feel they are owed that. Is that a fair interpretation of how things worked back then? Well, no, I don't think there was ever that promise or even suggestion. I think some of the things that got undone around that period, again, some of them were done before we got there. Some of them were done by us. But we're not going to go back to defined benefit pension plans. We're not going to go back to company-paid retiree health care. We're not going to go back to workers coming in and very, very quickly becoming tier ones or permanent workers, whatever they're called now. No, I don't think there was ever any, any promise or hope of that. I think our goal was to right-size the companies uh, from a cost point of view so that they could make money, and then hopefully the workers would participate. And as I said, in terms of average wa- you know, wage, they haven't really, in terms of cash, you know, way, base wages, I don't know that they've participated as much as I would have hoped, but there have been fairly substantial profit-sharing bonuses for many of them over this period of time. And I think there is an outcome here that would be very much in the spirit of what we were thinking about back in 2009. We're not necessarily a political news organization, but I wanted to get your read on the political side of things. Obviously, working with the Obama administration, now the Biden administration, attempting to try to help out and intervene in these negotiations. Obviously, with a strike could damage the the economy, which is a key pillar of President Biden's reelection campaign. Just wondering what challenges or opportunities you see there from a political standpoint. One of the uh, somewhat surprising and best things about my assignment in 2009 was that I was told to do the right thing for the companies, for the economy, and not worry about the politics, not tilt in favor of the union, not tilt against them, of course, but not tilt in favor of them. And I was very much insulated from the politics of it. And that really made a great deal of sense. Now, it was right at the beginning of President Obama's term. There was no re-election in front of him and so forth. Today, we're in a different position. There's a, a re-election coming very soon 
uh, and so the politics are much more intense. And I think as part of the, you know, this whole rise of populism that's out there, and by the way, I don't think it's hard, maybe this is not a particularly original thought, but it's not hard to draw a straight line between what's happened to industrial workers of all kinds, not just auto workers over the last 15 years or any period of time, and the rise of this of the Trump style populism. These are, there are a lot of folks out there, a lot of the so-called white working class men who may not just not have had a pay increase, they may have actually lost their jobs at $35 an hour and gone to work in a copy shop at $15 an hour and become pretty disenchanted with the American dream. And I get that. Um, I think it's obvious to say that there are far more workers than there are CEOs or other C-suite executives. And therefore, taking the side of the workers is probably politically a much better place to be. The Midwest is a very important area of the country in this election. Michigan is a very important state in this election. It's, it's certainly a swing state that could easily decide this election. And so it's not surprising to see politicians, including Republicans like J.D. Vance, trying to, or in effect, taking the side of the workers. In terms of the economy, yeah, look, the, the auto industry is roughly 3% of the economy. So it's not nothing. It's not huge. I think even given the expectation that this strike could go on for a very long time, I don't see it necessarily putting the economy into recession. I do think it could have some very substantial local economic effects because there's a whole ripple, obviously, if the car company shut down and the, uh, and the coffee shop next door shuts down and the local stores aren't doing as well and house prices and so on. And that's a political problem for the incumbents of both parties. But I don't see it bringing down the overall national economy unless it really becomes a bigger, much, much, much bigger thing. Before I let you go, just want to get your final thoughts as to how you see this playing out. Do you think the automakers may be forced to bend a bit further on their wage offers and things like COLA? Yeah, sure. I don't think what's on the table now from the auto companies is their last word. And I don't think what's on the table now from the auto workers is their last word. I'm not a labor negotiator, but I've done a lot of deals over the years in my banking career. And there's always a bid. There's always an ask. And almost inevitably, people meet somewhere in the middle. As I said earlier, I do think the unions have taken, uh, start out, the unions start out with such an extreme position that it isn't going to be meeting in the middle, uh, if you want to use that as some kind of a goalpost. I think by every indication, the union's going to come out of this in a better position than they went in. It's just obviously, like anything of this sort, not going to be all they hope for. Stephen Ratner, thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News Coordinating Producer Jake Neer and Alicia Anderson. Today's episode includes reporting from our own John Irwin and Carly Schaffner, as well as David Kennedy at our sibling publication, Automotive News Canada, and Kurt Nagel at our sibling publication, Crane's Detroit Business. You can get the latest news on the UAW strike, safety ratings, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation about one of the toughest issues in the UAW Detroit 3 negotiations, tiered workers. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.